We're going to worship God through his word. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be a number of different places in scripture today. So uh, either lick your fingers in advance and start flipping fast a little bit from now. Uh, but we'll also have some, some help from the screens up above us as we walk through this um, we're really coming to the close these next couple of weeks of this series, Connect with God, asking basic questions about what it looks like to grow in our faith and our walk with Him, uh, to relate to Him and mature in our faith. And so the question we're asking this morning is, how can I discern God's will? How can I discern God's will? And this is a challenging topic for all kinds of reasons. So in the Bible, for example, there are lots of different ways that people discover God's will. There are lots of different ways that God guides his people. So there's a burning bush, famously, in the book of Exodus. There's the still small voice, visions, dreams. There's casting of lots. God writes a word, Ichabod, on a wall. He writes 10 words on stone tablets. All kinds of different ways in which God is guiding and directing his people in scripture. His guidance comes through prophets, reluctant prophets, weeping prophets, naked prophets in Isaiah chapter 20. So strange, some strange things are going on occasionally, right? Pagan kings, talking donkeys, shining stars in the east. I mean, so God is guiding his people in all kinds of different ways, varied ways, sometimes wildly varied Ways And so that can get us thinking, oh, which, which, which one do I expect? As a Christian living here in the 21st century, which, which one of those am I looking for, right? And you add to the fact, to that combination of different ways, that we can, as Christians right here and now, we can spend a lot of time anxious and worried about whether we're in the center of God's will, right? We, we sometimes use that language, it's, it's a... It's a Christianese sort of phrase. Are we in the center of God's will or are we sort of on the fringes? Are we even still in God's will? We sort of, we've, we've missed the bullseye. We use that kind of language, right? So we're wondering, am I reading you know, God's providences correctly? Am I reading the signs that he's trying to send me, right? That looks like an open door. There's another Christianese, the open door, right? It looks like an open door, but who opened it? Did I open it? Did God open it? Did the devil open it? Is it a trap door or is it a real door, right? To, uh, I have a peace about this. Is that because, do I have a peace about it because God is giving me peace as I step toward this situation? Or do I have the kind of peace that Jonah had when he was asleep in the bottom of the boat, rebelling against God's purposes? So we can get stuck guessing and second guessing. And am I reading this correctly? And next thing you, don't, you know, we're paralyzed in indecision because we want to do God's will, but we just can't tell for sure if this is what we're supposed to do or not, and so we end up talking about God's will like it's a corn maze, like, like it's a bullseye, right? And so that's why we have spoof news reports like the following. So this is a parody, and it reads this way. Here's the headline of this news report. Man, age 91, dies waiting for the will of God. Tupelo, Mississippi. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. Quote, he hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, 
never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. That was primary to him. Obviously, that, that is an intentional use of exaggeration to throw light on a real problem. And the real problem is that we can live in fear that we're gonna do the wrong thing, unaware of how much clarity there already is. How clearly God has spoken about what we're to do with our lives, his will and his purpose for our lives. Let me just say this right up front. Christian friend, follower of Jesus, there is right now enough clarity for you and me to take bold steps of faith and risk-taking obedience, motivated by a love for others and for the glory of God. Let me say that one more time. There is right now enough clarity for you to take bold steps of faith and risk-taking obedience, motivated by love for others and the glory of God. So we're gonna talk about three, three truths that, that, if you will, get us unstuck get us out of the paralysis of indecision and moving with faith in our hearts in the direction of God's purposes with confidence. So three life-shaping principles. Number one, God's word is enough. God's word is enough. So one of the reasons I hated math in high school is is because so often it seemed like the word problems that I was given didn't have all the information that I needed in order to solve the problem, right? Anybody else experience this? And, and the teacher tells you it's all there. I promise you everything that you need to solve the equation is there. I'm like, no, it's not. And what I was looking for was the answer, right? All, but all the things that, that needed to be there were there for me to solve the problem. But the same thing can be true with scripture. We can read scripture and just say, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't seem like I have everything I need to find out what I'm supposed to do next. But it's here. It's here in scripture. So Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 16, a famous verse. Many of you may be familiar with it. All scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and is profitable, so it's useful for what? For teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, we'll come back to that in a moment, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Say every good work. Every good work. So it trains us for righteousness. What does that mean? It means scripture trains us for a life that is fully pleasing to God. Everything that we need for life and godliness is in his word. It trains us for that kind of life. You think about this. Look, nothing shapes the trajectory of a person's life more than genuine faith in Jesus Christ. That, that in a sense, remaps everything. That changes all the trajectories of your life here and your eternity, trusting in Jesus Christ. A few verses right before this, Paul said that the scriptures, Timothy, make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That, that is, friends, that is what God's word ultimately does. It makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. In other words, the whole Bible is pointing at the same person, the same hero. It's, the whole Bible's pointing at Jesus. All 66 books, you could think of them as 66 spotlights. 
and they're all directed, oriented toward pointing at Jesus. They're throwing light on God's promised king who comes, who lives, who dies on the cross for our sins, taking the penalty for our sins, who rises again from the dead, and to trust in that savior whom God has provided is to be rescued. That's the Bible's language, to be saved, it's to be transformed, to be reborn. Everything is changed because of that reality. In other words, it, it doesn't just change the things that we'll do in the future, it changes the doer. It changes the you behind all your actions. That is the most fundamental reorientation toward the will of God is salvation, right? Trust in Christ. If you've never believed in him today, I love Denver Nolan just a moment ago, not only praying for the things that we're doing in the world, but people right in this room who haven't maybe trusted in Jesus. Trust in him, it rewires everything. Your sins are forgiven because of what he did on the cross when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So scripture is sufficient for the knowledge of salvation and it's sufficient for living a life that's pleasing to God. That's why he says it equips us for those words we repeated together. Every good work. It equips us for any kind of work and every kind of work that God might call good. Scripture equips us for that. In other words, everything that we need for a life governed by the dictates of God, governed by the wisdom of God is in his word. So you think about what we know from God's word and how that connects to our everyday lives. So this is in your notes. We know his purpose. And before we skate past that too quickly, that is a dramatic thing. That is a huge thing to know. Imagine that you could have five minutes with Jesus Christ. And he's, he's during his earthly ministry, and we go back in time, you got five minutes with Jesus Christ, and you don't waste your time, right? You're standing in line, everybody's got their five minutes, and then you come up, and you're not gonna, you're not gonna waste any time, you're not gonna ask some dumb question or irrelevant or tangential question, we're gonna ask the big one. So what do I do with my life? <laughs> tell, tell, me, tell me how to not waste my life. Tell me what you want from me, Matt Mason, insert your name here. Tell me what you want me to do with my life. Well, turns out somebody already asked Jesus that question in Matthew chapter 22. And we have his answer, the savior of the world, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate said, this is what I want you to do with your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if that's deflating, I'm sorry. <laughs> Right, if you were hoping for the name of your future spouse, sorry, but this is a bigger one. This is actually much more systemic, much more important, much more connected to everything you'll ever do in your future. God is clear about our purpose. Isaiah 43 verse seven says that he created us for his glory. We know why we exist, why we were made. The apostle Paul says, whatever you do, so here's what I want you to do, whatever you do, eating and drinking, word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. Christian friend, don't, don't underestimate the, the cash value, the rubber meets the road value of knowing your purpose. It affects every decision you make. So by way of analogy, imagine how much time a hammer wastes if it doesn't know it's a hammer. <laughs> if it doesn't know hammers drive 
nails. It's what they do, they were designed to do. Imagine how much time a hammer wastes trying to turn screws. It's like, you weren't designed for that. You weren't made for that. You were made to drive nails. And then when it finds a nail, it knows, right? Slam your head against this thing and awesome stuff happens. That's, that's design. We know what we were designed to do. So there's an animated movie that came out several years ago, not the one Daniel Rindstrom referenced a moment ago. So this is like animated movie morning at Brook Hills. But it's a movie called Ice Age. And in Ice Age 2, there's an interesting character. There's a mammoth who thinks she's a possum. And so, because she's sort of raised by possums. And so, you know, she, when it's time to go to sleep, all her possum brethren and sistren, right, they, they all line up and they climb up the tree and they hang by their tails and they go to sleep. And there's possum, possum, mammoth hanging from her tail on the tree. She thinks that she's a possum, right? And, and so when danger comes... Her possum brothers roll over and act like they're dead. And this massive mammoth rolls over, sticks her legs up and acts like she's dead, right? So she's playing dead like all the other possums. And then there's this turning point in the movie for her when someone helps her discover, guess what? You're a mammoth. (laughs) And it's a mammoth that tells her, right? So that's why we look so much alike. We're, we're designed in a different way than possums are designed. Think, think about how many decisions are made for you already or are ruled out in advance the moment you realize your purpose is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, that's the lane your whole life travels in. You're in that lane, you're flourishing. That's God's will, is living in that lane, driving in, your, in that lane. So as a church, think about how important that is, how decisive that is for us. All our flourishing is there. The great commandment, the great commission, love Jesus, love others, help others love Jesus. It's really simple, but that affects everything that we do. And to the degree that we're doing stuff that isn't connected to that, we're outside of the most important aspects of the purpose of God. His purpose is clear. We pursue that purpose, we flourish. We abandon that purpose, we shrivel. So we know his purpose. Next, we hear his commands. We hear his commands. So there is, uh, this may surprise some of you, a reality show in the Bible. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the story of this guy named Solomon. And he's wrecking his life. And like so many other reality shows, the the author is searching for the good life. The author is searching high and low for satisfaction, for meaning. And like so much reality TV, the main star, the main actor is miserable the entire time. All the way through the book of Ecclesiastes, the main character is miserable. And so it's Solomon. Solomon, in effect, what the book of Ecclesiastes is about is Solomon abandoned all the wisdom that he was taught as a child and he lived like an atheist for 11 chapters. And then you come to the end of the book, you come to the end of the show, right? And right before the credits start rolling, you hear Solomon say this. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. In other words, he realizes at the end of searching high and low for satisfaction and purpose and meaning in life, he had it at the very start. The conclusion at the end of the matter is fear God and keep his commands. So much pain and frustration that fills those 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes could have been avoided 
had he kept the commands and lived in the fear of God, doesn't mean it would have been heaven on earth for Solomon if he followed God's commands, but foolishness reaps a harvest. And that's the story of the book of Ecclesiastes. Foolishness is a harvest. You sow to it, you reap it. You think about how relevant God's commands are for your everyday life. So we say things like, you know, I wanna hear God's voice. I wanna know it's his voice. I wanna know it's him, it's not me. It's not too much pizza. It's not just some weird dream. I wanna know it's him that's leading me and him that's speaking to me. What is God's will for my life? And God's word just comes punching back with such crispness and clarity. God says, here's my will for you. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only what befits and what imparts grace to the hearer. Make disciples, flee sexual immorality. You just think about that for, just for one, flee sexual immorality. That command alone will directly affect a hundred spontaneous decisions you'll make this week are downstream of this command. Flee sexual immorality. Immorality, God's word is enough too. God's aim is my heart. God's aim is my heart. So you consider how, how the apostles prayed for the churches and they don't often pray detailed prayers about certain numbers of elders being raised up, for example, as that's relevant for us. Or a certain, I just pray that Ephesus would plant four churches this year. You don't hear those kinds of detailed, down in the weeds, Prayers, they're praying further up prayers, higher up, upstream prayers, right? So for example, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, and that Christ, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Paul, why are you praying all this, you know, 30,000 foot high theology and not praying right down here in the weeds of practical life? And Paul would say, I am praying for everything that Ephesus will ever do. But I'm praying for the things that shape all of that. I'm praying upstream kinds of prayers. In other words, when Jesus Christ dwells in the hearts of believers in Ephesus, everything else that God wants for them begins to take place. Christ may dwell in their hearts. What Christ? The same Christ who came to seek and save the lost. So he is praying for the disciple-making efforts of Ephesus and the church-planning efforts of Ephesus. It's all wrapped up that this Christ who came to reconcile God and man, that that Christ would dwell in the hearts of believers in Ephesus. If that Christ increasingly takes the command center of the heart of believers in Ephesus, all kinds of good things start growing in the life of the church. It's just like in parenting, right? So we can, we can aim right at the behavior. We can behavior modify the daylights out of our children, right? And you might reap immediate results, but wait and it withers. The more excellent way is shepherd the child's heart. Fill up their hearts with love for Jesus and then all the other things are response and overflow of the work of God's spirit in their lives. It takes more time but the fruit tastes better and the fruit lasts longer. That's why the apostles prayed the way that they did. Next point, he shapes our character so that we discern his will. 
He shapes our character so that we discern his will. So Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is a call to holiness, right? He says, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. There's the character reformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind to what end? So that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Again, he shapes our characters. He transforms our minds. He renews our minds so that we can discern. He makes us different so that we might be discerning. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, reads this way. For you were once darkness, but now, this is an indicative, you are light in the Lord. It's an is. You are light in the Lord, and now here comes the imperative. Live as children of light. That's what you are. Daniel was talking about that a moment ago. You are light, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Skipping down to verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. So here's the wisdom and discernment and will of God peace. Verse 16. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So these same people who are called to understand what the, will of the Lord's is, what the will of the Lord is are the people who are described as those who are light and are called to live in the light. And it even gives you products of what it looks like to live in the light. So he shapes our character so that we can discern his will. Next, everything flows out of what's in the heart. That's why we aim at the heart. Everything flows out of what's in the heart. Proverbs chapter four, verse 23. Guard your heart above all else. What a vital verse to remember. Above all else, for it is the source of life. The ESV translates that second part. For from it flow the springs of life. From the heart flow the springs of life. So in scripture, again, the heart is command control. There's this cosmic battle being waged in the world and it's a battle for the heart. It's a battle for the affections. Who will fallen men and women treasure? That's, that's the battle playing out in the world. And so often, you know, when we're walking through life, we don't have a chance. We don't have the opportunity to stop and spend three days praying and fasting about what God wants us to do. Why? Because life is coming at you. It's, it's there, you, you need to process it, you need to, you need to respond to it. And so our responses are drawn from the well and the well is the heart. We're drawing upward from the well that's already there. That, that's probably why author John Piper says, the counsel that I give people most often when they're asking me about how to discern God's will is, he says, don't draw up a list, become a kind of person. In other words, it's, it's this character that shapes our decisions, the things that we pursue. No time, Christian friend, no time spent pursuing godliness is time wasted. Because there will be a hundred, hundreds of potentially life-altering decisions you and I will make this week and it'll draw straight out of the well that's the heart. 
Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we blow people up because it's just rising straight out of the heart. You change the heart, you change the words, you change the actions, everything else is changed. That's why you have texts like this, Proverbs 11.3. The integrity of the upright guides them. There's guidance. Integrity in the heart, character transformation guides. But the perversity of the treacherous destroys them. Three verses later, the righteousness of the upright rescues them, but the treacherous are trapped by their own desires. Proverbs 13.6, righteousness guards people of integrity, but wickedness undermines the sinner. How often in the Proverbs, guidance from God into his perfect will is downstream of pursuing a heart that is humble before him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Third, God's call is a pilgrimage of faith. God's call is a pilgrimage of faith. So Hebrews chapter 11 is often known as the hall of faith. So it's these stories, faith stories, right? They're not all mountaintop faith experiences. The common trait, the only common trait is that all these different people throughout Old Testament history, they're all looking upward and outward. They live their lives looking upward and outward and they're living with hope in God. They're living because God is worth it and faith in him is worth it. Christ is worth it. And so this next point in your notes, we don't expect it to be easy. Pursuing God's will, living the life of faith doesn't mean that it's easy. That's not proof that we've, we've discovered his wills because it's easy. No. Just read Hebrews chapter 11. Bible scholar Bruce Waltke points out that yes, Hebrews 11 is all about faith, but the, the faith that each one of those men and women had doesn't produce the same life result. So he says, just pick the first three names in the story of Hebrews chapter 11 and note the differences in what their faith brought about. Abel had faith and he died. Enoch had faith and he didn't die. Noah had faith and everyone else died. All right, so the outcomes of the, this common faith is all there, but the outcomes look diverse, shall we say. They, they look much different in each different case. Now, Peter talks about the Christian life as pilgrimage. He writes to exiles. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers right, pilgrims, exiles, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, right, life doesn't sound easy in this text, does it? But Peter's talking about that being a reality. So when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. This same Peter will go on to say, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, by the fiery trial that you're experiencing as though something strange is happening. That's par for the course. That's the pattern of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul, he's planting churches in the book of Acts. He comes back through the region where he's just planted a brand new, brand new churches and it says in Acts 14, verse 21 and 22, after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned. So here they go, coming back through. They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples. Now, what is their discipleship curriculum? What are they teaching brand new believers? Here's what they're teaching them. Strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith 
and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's hard and that's not gonna change. Suffering is a reality here. The pattern of the Christian life has already been laid down by Jesus. We don't do an end run around suffering. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This will be our story. Every person in this room. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. At the end of the day, we are delivered, but we're not delivered from them, we're delivered through them. It's suffering, then glory. It's, it's a cross and then a crown. It's present darkness and your best life later. That's, that's the, the pattern of New Testament teaching. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, when we come to Christ and we ask, will you be my shepherd and guide me through life? He asks in return, will you take up the cross daily and follow me? The two things can never be separated. Christ-likeness then in glory must be preceded by Christ-likeness now under the cross. It is a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life and existence that we're called to now. So, so how do we pursue this? Five, five life-shaping practices for us to, Lord willing, take home. Number one, work while you're waiting. Work while you're waiting. God doesn't want us as Christians sitting around idly for instructions that we've already received. <laughs> He's already given us enough clarity to take a step of faith, to take risk-taking, bold steps of faith working itself out in love. That, that's what he's called us to. And so here it is in your notes. Let any new direction from God interrupt today's full-hearted faithfulness. Let it come barging in because you are fully giving yourself to the, to the moment that you're living in, the place that you're living in. You're not just waiting for some next thing. You're giving yourself to, to this moment that God has you in by his providence. God's will, in other words, God's will for your life right now has to do with whoever's standing in front of you. It has to do with wherever you happen to live. It has to do with the school that you're walking into, the office building you're going into tomorrow morning, and he's calling us to go in with a sense of purpose, that the work that you do matters. The words that you use matter. The attitudes and disposition of your heart and your way with people matters. That's God, God has spoken clearly. You think about Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. You don't find him frantically shaking a magic eight ball for the name of the next city. Oh, no answer. Oh, try it again. That's not what you see happening in the book of Acts. He uses, it seemed good to us, language, over and over. It seemed good to us to go here, right? And then sometimes the spirit throws up supernatural blockades. And he says, okay, I guess it's not there. We'll go here. Spirit blows up, you know, says, that's, that's not where you're going either. He forbids them to go there. He says, then we'll go here. In other words, the, the moment that the spirit forbids them to go to Asia, they don't stall out <laughs> and say, oh, okay, let's, let's shake this thing and see if we can get a city name. That, that's not what happens. He just says, if it's not here, it's there. It's not there, it's there. They're just moving. It seemed good to, the, to us and to the Holy Spirit to move in this direction. That's faith-filled, risk-taking obedience to Christ. Number two, 
Don't over-spiritualize non-moral decisions. So here we're talking about decisions that aren't either righteous or unrighteous, right or wrong. Those are clear. God has spoken to those. We don't need to feel our way toward that or be intuitive. It's just clear in God's word. But when it comes to non-moral decisions, this is how we get stuck. We assume that there's you know, some sort of secret sort of fortune cookie that God has laid somewhere. And if you don't find it, guess what? You get to live in plan B for the rest of your life. Or C, and then who knows when you run out of letters? Is it based on like English alphabet, Hebrew alphabet, you know, 23, 26? What's going on there, right? We're reading all these things into God's will instead of thinking, God's given me a lane to travel in. And within in this lane, there's freedom to do all kinds of God-glorifying things. Like in this lane, I can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's a pretty big one, right? In this lane, I can love God and love his people and love those far from God. In this lane, I can follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. And that's gonna look a million different possible ways. One way for you, one way for me. His commands are guardrails, right? And in those guardrails, there's tremendous freedom for us to pursue his purposes with great confidence. A non-moral decision you don't, you don't need an angelic visit to choose a college major. It's important to be wise. It's important to ask good questions. We'll come to that in just a moment. Single brothers, you don't need the sky to open over the right girl before you invite her to coffee. Right? We, we get paralyzed. We get stuck because we, we get more spiritual than the Bible. We're assuming all these things are normative, right? And if we do have an impression or feel like God is guiding us in a certain direction, we can treat that as just what it is, an impression. Maybe it's from the Lord, maybe it's not from the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, "Um, Matt, doesn't the book of Acts have lots of dreams and visions and lots of prophetic words and those kinds of things, not just in the Old Testament, but like in the New Testament with the apostles and in the book of Acts? The answer is yes, but you never see them asking for a dream before they do something. They're never asking for the name of the next city. You see them praying, but what are they praying for? Boldness. (laughs) They're praying for the success of the gospel. They're not shaking a magic eight ball and trying to find out, you know, what's the blueprint or the schematic of the future in the details, that's not what they're asking for. And when it comes, it comes. But even there, it comes like five or six times in 30 years. You get like five or six dreams and visions in the book of Acts spread out over. There's one here, then you fast forward five years, you fast forward 12 years, fast forward, right? So they're they're not happening just every day. You just come to expect them. It's the normal way that God leads. No, he does it when he wants to do it, and we're grateful. But we're not waiting to act based on supernatural intrusions, right? He's told us all kinds of fun stuff we can give ourselves to for the glory of his name. There's a healthier way, right? You've ever, ever encountered, well, this is in your notes, I'll say this first. Impressions may be from the Lord, but they don't, to, they don't get to live above the scrutiny of scripture and godly counsel. So if you've ever encountered a believer who sensed the Lord wanted him to do something sketchy, or or something questionable, and he starts out by just informing whoever it is that's sitting at the table, I feel like the Lord is leading me to this. And it's sort of a conversation ender, right? 
I mean, who am I to disagree with the Lord himself? Right? There's no way we can have a healthy, constructive conversation that's, that's scrutinized by the dictates of God's wisdom in his word if we start out by just announcing, I'm walking down from the mountain here, tablets in hand, I know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe, so there's a more excellent way. Let's be humble. Maybe the impression's right. Maybe it's not. Let's talk it through. Let's look at God's word. So that leads to number three. Ask wise questions. Ask wise questions. When it comes to non-moral decisions, not right and wrong, not sin or obedience decisions, ask questions like, do any principles from God's word inform this decision? Ask questions like, of many options, which option seems to tend most toward the glory of God and the good of others? Ask questions like, does this job prospect, does this career path match gifts that God has given me? That's not an unspiritual question. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, you got different gifts. Everybody's got different gifts. And he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace God, given, God has given us, let us use them. So you want to use a gift in the life of the church? Paul says, start with the ones that God gave you. If you have a gift, use it. Start there. Ask the question, what do wise friends think? That's not an unspiritual question. It's in God's word. Look at this. Proverbs 12, 15 says, a fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail where there's no counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. And if you're thinking, you know, I'm just gonna go at this personally. I'm just gonna take my Bible into the room, pray personally. I don't need to talk to human beings of any kind. According to those two Proverbs I just read, that's a great plan if you want your plans to fail. He says, plans fail where there is no counsel. Guess who's speaking? God is speaking. And he's the one telling you, hey, talk to some friends. Talk to some wise friends about this first. Listen to counsel, Proverbs 19.20. And receive instruction so that you may be wise later in life. Bottom line, I make better decisions when I discuss them with wise people. I make better decisions, I promise. When I talk with my wife, good things happen in our house. It's a good thing for us to talk together. Number four, pray for a heart of wisdom. Pray for a heart of wisdom. So prayer, don't don't mishear me. Prayer is absolutely vital. But again, it doesn't mean that our prayers are fixated on sort of sending up yes, no boxes into heaven connected to every potential decision we might make. So do I wear these socks? Yes or no? You know, do I, whatever. You can multiply examples. That's not what we see in the New Testament. Having said that, we're foolish not to pray for our own hearts, praying my desires would be shaped by his word, praying that God would guard me from foolish instincts, that God would guard me from pride or the fear of man or the fear of missing out or whatever it is that would get me stuck and keep me from moving into his purposes. So pray like they did in, in Acts. Pray for boldness. Pray like Solomon did. Pray for wisdom. Five, and lastly, boldly do what God has revealed. Boldly do what God has revealed. What has God revealed? The most important answer to that question, the most important things that are in front of you this week are already clear. What does God want me to do this week? Overcome evil with good. Be kind to one another. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Husbands, love your wives. 
Wives, respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Cast all your cares on him. In everything, give thanks. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Look to Jesus. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Church, there is no reason to be passive or idle or, or worried. At the end of his book, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson on discerning God's will, he comes back to, uh, to Psalm 23 and he says that God has two sheepdogs for the believer, goodness and mercy. And they follow us all the days of our lives and they sometimes nip at us. And they, so God has ways by his providence of getting us right onto the path that he wants for us without us being completely perplexed and locked in paralysis about what we're supposed to do next. Friend, aim at what God has made clear it is wonderfully clarifying for the hammer to learn its name, it, for the hammer to know it's designed and destined to drive nails. You are made, Christian, for the glory of God. You are made to enjoy his glory. You are made to reflect his glory. You are made to spread the knowledge of his glory among the nations. You lean into that this week and you can put your head on the pillow every night and say, that was God's will. I was confident and I had every reason to be confident and when my feet hit the floor tomorrow morning, I know exactly why I'm here and I can lean fully into his purposes. It'll be God's will tomorrow. May we, may we church, as Christians and followers of Jesus, may we have strength to do his will in the power of his spirit.